Open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. As you're turning there, in its most basic sense, I think it's fair to say that a Christian is a person who loves what God loves and hates what God hates. Another way of saying that is that a believer who is progressively growing in grace, in godliness, in holiness, in sanctification, who's becoming more mature, becomes more and more like God. And to become more and more like God, you definitely begin warming up to the things he loves and disdaining the things that he hates. Most of us quickly can put together a list of the things that God loves. God is love. We know that he loves righteousness. He loves holiness. He loves justice. He loves goodness. He loves loyalty. He loves kindness. We could go on and on talking about the things that God exonerates, the things that God loves, the things that God promotes. I don't think we think often enough, and certainly we don't talk enough about the things that God hates. God is the perfect balance of all emotions. He's the perfect balance of all justice and righteousness. He can love and hate equally without any contradiction. He can judge and save commensurately with no contradiction. And when we come to Proverbs chapter six, we come to a section that describes some things that God hates. And I wanna encourage you before we even read the text to think about this text perhaps a little differently than you have before and certainly differently than, than your flesh would like for you to think about this text. We've been reading, in, especially in chapter six, chapter four and uh, uh, three and four and in six of Proverbs, uh, these things that God looks, he's, Solomon through, God through Solomon is talking to Rehoboam and saying, I want you to have a proper worldview. I want you to see the world correctly. I want you to understand the world from a, from a biblical, a God-focused uh, perspective. And it's very easy for us to look at a list like we're going to read and say, that's right, I saw that on the news. That's right, I saw that in my public high school. I saw that in my Christian high school. I saw that in my neighborhood. But I think if we grab the heart of what Solomon is trying to teach Rehoboam. He's saying, beware of these things in your society and in your culture, but be aggressive about strangling these before they get life in your own heart. Follow along as I read verses 16 through 19. Proverbs 6, 16. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, Feet that run rapidly to evil. 
a false witness who utter lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. We use the word hate almost as irresponsibly as we use the word love. We have so overused the word love, it's almost lost its meaning. For me to say, I love Little Debbie Swiss cake rolls and Krispy Kreme donuts, and I also love my wife, there's, there's, there's a gap there. To say I love a sunset and, and I, I love a roller coaster and I love my mom, what does that even mean? Equally, we've, we've abused the word hate. I mean, I say I, I hate mushrooms, and all of you should as well. It's part of the curse, it's a fungus. But to say, I hate mushrooms and I hate abortion don't even feel like they belong in the same sentence. Hate means to dislike something strongly, to dislike it intensely. All of us are natural haters as well as natural haters of being hated. You ever thought about that? We hate being hated, which is another way of saying we love being loved. One of the biggest misconceptions of God is that he is a God of love only and that God has no hatred. Are you aware that God is a God of hatred? Almost sounds odd to say, doesn't it? God is a God who hates And we see a list of specific things that he hates in the text before us tonight. Now, the medieval church, as you might have known known and heard, had uh, a list of these things. The seven deadly sins it was alluded to. Gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. The problem is it doesn't really match up with this list. These are not the same sins as in our text. Because there are more than just seven things that God hates. These are not the only thing that God hates. Uh, we, we know, for example, uh, in the book of Micah, that God hates divorce. But that doesn't show up in this list. Now, the first thing we have to do when we look at this list is say, what is Solomon saying when he says, most definitively, there's six things that God hates. And you're like, okay, I'm ready to get my, my, my calculator out and write, write down six blanks. And then he stops, it's actually seven. Is he confused? No, this is actually a rhetorical device used in ancient Hebrew for emphasis. It gives one number, which is less than the ultimate number, so that you can bump it up one and say, listen, this is extreme and this is serious. So there are six, yes, seven things that God hates. And again, this is not a comprehensive list. God calls other sins abominable. In 1 Kings 21, 26, he hates idolatry. And in Leviticus 18, he hates homosexuality. He hates human sacrifice. In Deuteronomy 12, 31, he hates messing around with the occult. In Deuteronomy 18, 9 and following. But this gives us a list. We're approaching the Lord's table tonight. We're, we're gonna have communion at the end of our service. And what I want this to be is actually more of a long meditation to prepare our hearts 
to sit before the Lord at his table and evaluate our hearts. This is a perfect place not to say, look at this list. I saw that on CNN and Fox News. I'd like for you to look at this list and see it in your own heart. All of these sins reside in our heart and all they need is the slightest bit of fuel to ignite them into expressions of what they portray. This is a simple list. I tell my wife, it, it doesn't even really need to be a long sermon. It's, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory. These are the things that God hates. So I think it's appropriate as we approach sitting before the Lord to look at this as a self-reflective list. It is so easy. I want to confess, looking at this, this text early in the week, I thought about getting examples of pride and examples of, of bloodshed, examples that I could get from the, from the news and from uh, my RSS feed for, for um, uh, several news organizations. And it would be easy to illustrate. My question is, could you point to things in your own life that illustrate these seven things that God hates? Because here's the good news. These are things that reside in our hearts for which our Savior died to save us from the wrath that rightly resides and belongs on us for acting and thinking on these things. You have an outline there in your handout that you can follow along. It's very simple. Seven things that God hates. Number one, pride. Is that any surprise that, that Solomon will start with this? Rehoboam, God hates pride. It comes in this little phrase, haughty eyes. It literally means a proud look, not someone who looks prideful, someone who views the world from a self-centered, self-exonerating position. It's the idea that you have a high estimation and outlook of yourself. And all of us have this. I find that I have become, over the course of the, the years of my life, I am an expert in identifying pride in others. I can see it. I can smell it. I can feel it. Oh, that's proud. That is so prideful. You're promoting yourself. Oh, you're, you're, you're the hero of this story. Isn't it easy to ident identify pride in others? Do you realize that others can identify it in you as well? Psalm 101, verse 1, listen to David. The Psalm of David, I will sing of loving kindness and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house with the integrity of my heart. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It is not fasten, it is not, it shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I know I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, those are in tandem, will I endure. David, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says he doesn't endure a haughty heart, a prideful disposition. And let me say again, this is so easy to identify in so many others. 
but it shows up from the very youngest age until our dying breath. This is a junior high problem. Students, this is a junior high problem. I remember identifying it very clearly in my classmates, not myself, of course. You know when the teacher hands back all the grades and everyone looks at their grades and there are two kinds of people in that moment, right? There's the kind who want to turn their paper over so no one sees it, that was me. And then there's the person who says, oh, I made a 98. What did you make, Ricky? I still remember her. (laughs) It's in the stories we tell. It's in the reasons we tell them. Parents can be proud about their kids. I hesitated to mention this, but I think it's okay, and we're a few months away from it, so sometimes I think all of us need to guard our hearts when we write Christmas letters. Did I say that out loud? And we want to say, look at us for three pages. So I'm just kidding. Be careful. Isaiah 2.11 The proud look of a man will be abased and the loftiness of the man will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In other words, he will not share his glory with another. How easy it is to forget that God will not share Isaiah 48, that glory with anyone else. C.J. Mahaney says this, we simply cannot overestimate how deeply God detests and abhors pride. In his classic book on humility, Andrew Murray shows the contrast between humility and pride, and he says this. It's worth reading. The life of God, the life God rather bestows, is imparted not once for all, but each moment continuously by the unceasing operation of his mighty power. God's constantly working in our lives. Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is from the very nature of things, the first duty and highest virtue of the creature. In fact, humility, Murray says, is the virtue, the root of every virtue. Think about that. Humility is the root. It's the core of every virtue we would do. Conversely, pride or the loss of humility is the root of every sin and every evil. It was when the now fallen angels began to look upon themselves with self-complacency that they were led to disobedience and were cast down from the light of heaven into outer darkness. Even so it was when the serpent breathed the poison of his pride, the desire to be as God, into the hearts of our first parents that they too fell from their highest state into all wretchedness in which man is now sunk. In heaven and earth, pride or self-exaltation is the gate and birth and the curse of hell. Wow. Jonathan Edwards, remember that pride is the worst viper that's in the heart, the greatest disturber of the soul's peace and the soul's sweet communion with Christ. I think it's, it's a hard thing, but we need to stop and, and think, how much of what I do, how much of what I say, how much of, of what, I, what, I, what I aspire to is for self promotion. Oh, we, 
we should identify it in the culture. And we, we see it on the athletic field. We see it on the news. We see it in the, in the governmental structures. We see it in the presidency itself. Easy to identify. Do you see it in your own heart? Let me assure you, our Lord does. Number two, he hates pride. Secondly, he hates lying. Lying. The next phrase, a lying tongue. <clears throat> As my wife and I were raising our three children, our three sons, who are now all out of the home and we are uh, empty nesters, and it, it, every night we keep waiting for the door to open for someone to come home from work, and it, it never does. It's a different stage for us. But as they were growing up, we made a conscious decision, and it became reality in our, our uh, shepherding of them that no, there was nothing in their lives, no sin that they would commit that was more severely punished and disciplined than lying. If you learn to lie and get away with it, you are learning the ways of the devil. John 8, 44, you lie and you're like your father, the devil who was a liar from the beginning. Proverbs 20, 12, 22 says, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. Lying lips are an abomination. And again, John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. You want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, it's a what? A lie. He speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. I remember having a conversation with one of my sons who was very young and I said, you are acting like your father, the devil. And his response was, why are you calling yourself a devil, dad? We had to do some John 44, 644 exegesis that day. Revelation 21, 8, talking about hell. But for the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is a second death. If we said it once, I bet we said it 10,000 times to our boys. Sons, let us beg you to turn to Christ because liars go to hell. Can we get just a little deeper on that for a minute? Why do we lie? Have you ever thought about why, why do I exaggerate? Why do I understate? Why do I lie? Why is it the truth hard for all of us in some measures? Two reasons that I've thought about. <clears throat> we lie to get what we want, material gain, appreciation, friendship. It feeds our pride. It's connected with number one. We lie to get what we want. And secondly, we lie to avoid what we deserve. The consequences of sin. We have to be careful how we define lying as well. Exaggeration can be a lie. Half-truths can be whole lies. We speak the truth in love. We, we have to be careful. There's that, that um, t television commercial that was on a few years ago that, was, that always made me chuckle where 
honest Abraham Lincoln, maybe you remember this, his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, uh, was wearing a, a dress, and she says, does this make me look heavy? And Abraham Lincoln just can't say anything. It's tough to speak the truth in love, but not impossible, or God would not have told us. This doesn't mean we have to say everything that could be said in every context. It means that we're wise in edifying, this is that, that same context in Ephesians 4, speaking such a word that builds up and edifies, but we're not lying. So do you overstate? Do you understate? Do you exaggerate? Do you outright lie? Do you cover sin with lies? One of the things that we, we talked with our boys about so many times was the compounding interest of lying. You know, it's important to teach your kids how interest compounds for savings account and interest compounds for debt. It's also important to teach them the interest compounds when you lie. It usually, lies usually make other lies up to cover the first lie and the second lie and the third lie. God hates lies. He hates lies. And it's no wonder... It's the character of the devil. Number three, murder. Now, I know what you're thinking. Whew, I'm safe on this one. I'm safe on this one. Just hang on a second. Hands that shed innocent blood. I think that he's telling Rehoboam, don't be quick to uh, 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 exonerate people who are literal murderers. Obviously, don't ha- let your feet run to that. That would come up in Rehoboam's life. Read 1 Kings 11 and 12. Though you may not be a physical murderer, can I remind you that Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21, you've heard that you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to your brother, you're good for nothing, he shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, that's heaven. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Oh, we may not be physical murderers or shedding of real blood. But the very act of hating is as heinous in God's mind as shedding blood. James 4, what a great passage to... In fact, would you turn over to James 4 a second? Kim and I were talking about how many times this passage has come up in our uh, shepherding and counseling and how many times it's come up in our relationship and how many times it comes up in our family and among my friends. James 4, verse 1. What is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? We can sit down with a married couple who's having trouble, brothers and sisters who are having trouble, two friends who are having trouble, siblings. It doesn't matter. Whoever, what is the source of the conflict? Is not the source your desires, your pleasure that wage war in your body and your members? Here it is. You epithemia, you lust, you long, you want, and you don't have. So you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask 
You ask with wrong motives. You spend it on your pleasures. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. What is he saying? Is he saying, is he really saying you're committing murder? Perhaps. But I, I really think that what James is saying here, he's using a euphemism like, like you and I would. You don't get what you want, so you're just killing each other. He's just being exaggerated. And by the way, the next phrase says, you fight in your quarrel, so obviously they're not dead. I think he's saying you're, you're committing a form of emotional, relational, and spiritual murder by your hatred, by your conflict. So we may not be shedders of innocent blood, but we certainly are those who can have hatred and frustration with others. Can I dial it in even a little closer? Are there people in the body of Christ in our church here at Mission Road? You see them coming across the building and your first thought is, I wanna be busy talking to someone else. By the way, you might be that for someone else, but that's another time. Have you ever thought about the fact that God has put you in this body with these people and the conflicts that we raise and the issues that we have and the sanctifying sandpaper that we are on each other so that he would change us? I was telling a friend recently, it was a great question. He says, what do you love about your church? What do you love about your church? It wasn't hard for me to just be effusive. It was last weekend when I was in in Houston. One of the things that I was surprised to hear myself say is I said, we're not very homogeneous. In other words, we got a broad range from the cradle to the grave. We got a broad range from the young to the old. We're not, we're not a cool church. We're not a hip church. We don't isolate one sector of the society and dial in on that. I love the fact that God has given us such a range. I'm looking right now. We have young and old and everything in between. What a gift. But he's put the body of Christ together like that for the purpose of allowing us to work out things that are difficult with each other. Can I get a little even deeper into the kitchen? How are you doing with your hatred, with your pride, perhaps with your lying, with your treatment of your own family? Are you a mean husband? Are you a mean wife? Are you a difficult child? I want to dare you to do something. I feel like I'm at a youth camp. I dare you to do something. I dare you. Ask your husband or wife, ask your kids or ask your parents. Am I hateful? Am I hateful? Am I difficult to be with and to live with and to talk with? Now, the answer might surprise you. I hope the answer is no, not all the time. Because that would probably be the truth. Let's go to number four before we get convicted anymore. Number four, evil strategies, evil strategies. Number, verse 18, a heart that plans, a heart that devises wicked plans. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only 
evil continually. Listen to the stack of adjectives there. This is what caused the flood. It wasn't the the Nephilim. It wasn't a a potential demon hybrid human race. I've heard people say, this is the reason God sent the flood right now. Ready? God saw that the intent, the heart of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent. That's intense. Saw uh, planning to do evil. Proverbs 24, 8. One who plans to do evil Men will call a schemer. What does this look like? Solving problems with evil plans, getting involved with evil plans, participating with conspiracies and evil plans at work, in your family, against someone, getting what you want by evil plans, avoiding loss by evil Gaining joy by evil. We're getting lots of documents in the mail right now for our taxes. You probably are too. W-2s and and our WWs and our WD-40s and all the, everything's coming in. Where's Ben Hyman? uh, Yes, I'm trying to do the math on that. I give it to Kim. She does it for me. We're doing all this. Did you know that the... The average American does everything he can not to do what he can on his taxes, which the law allows. And if, if you can pay less taxes and it's legal, have at it. You should pay what is due Caesar and not one penny more. Amen? This is the loudest amen I've gotten ever. But the average American does everything they can to cheat on their taxes. That's an evil plan. had a high schooler talk to me one time, very sincere high schooler, who came to me and said, can, can I ask you a question, Pastor, about whether or not something is evil? And I said, sure. He says, well, I like to go to movies, and there's a sign that says I can't take food in, but I always do. Is that wrong? <clears throat> And I said, well, not if you have cargo pants. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) Is that a hard question to answer? Is it really? I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm just saying little decisions lead to bigger decisions. Let's move on. (laughs) Number five. Involvement in other sin. Feet that run rapidly to evil. Feet that run rapidly to evil. It's built right off of the evil scheming in the previous phrase. Proverbs 1.15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet far from their path for their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Don't join up with others who want to run rapidly toward evil. Don't involve yourself with others who are wanting to sin. Isaiah 59, 7, their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are their highways. It's one thing to be overt and pronounced 
and pursuing sin. It's something else to want everyone, someone else to do the heavy lifting for a sin and you participate in that sin in their wake. I have to tell you that when I, when I was studying this passage, the one thing, not the one thing, something I was convicted about was entertainment. Now, I have to tell you, I had someone who uh, a few years ago in our church, I'd mentioned something about this, and they, they, they told me in a pronounced way that they didn't want to come back because you know, we were being legalistic and said we shouldn't have TVs and never go to movies, which I've never said, and I didn't say that day either. But feet that run rapidly to evil, do, do we run rapidly toward entertaining ourselves with things for which our Savior died? Is that not involving ourselves in others' sins? Watching people do something on a 60-foot screen that we would never do or condone, but somehow we justify that it's okay for us to watch and be entertained by? What would Jesus say about that? What would we say to them sitting before a television or sitting in a movie theater or reading a book or watching an internet video or you name it, and he were sitting there physically beside us, would it cause us any level of discomfort? I think we have to be careful. I think all of us can be quick to justify things that caused the Father to send the Son and crush him on a cross. Feet that run rapidly to evil. Number six, perjury. <clears throat> a false witness who utter lies, verse 19. Literally a false witness who breathes lies. It, it just comes out of them. They, just, they love to just utter falsehoods and bring someone low. Proverbs 12, 17. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceives. Proverbs 19, five, a false witness will go unpunished and he who tells lies will not escape, will not go unpunished and he who tells what lies will not escape. Proverbs 25, 18, like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. The ninth commandment says what? You shall not bear false witness against someone, against your neighbor. This is simple. This is, this is simply talking about the fact, listen, listen, you have the power of building or destroying someone's reputation by the utterance of a simple sentence. Life and death really are in the power of the tongue. I think so many times I just need to listen to what my mom said. Ricky, if you don't have something nice to say, don't what? Say anything at all. Your mom knew that too, huh? False witness. Saying something untrue about someone. The, the case here in, in Exodus, in the, in the ninth commandment, and the case that's, that's woven throughout that commandment through the book of Leviticus especially is someone's in trouble and you tell a lie to keep or get them in further trouble. That's the essence of a false witness. You're bearing a witness against someone that's not true. 
We hold the power of, of others' reputation in what we speak and listen and in what we hear. You know what we hear. If someone says something about a person you love or know, if someone says something about something, someone, in any instance, what's the right response? If it's slanderous, if it's gossip, if it's, if it's um, a false witness, it's to stop and say, listen, I can't receive that. Would you please go and talk to the person you're talking about? In fact, I want you to do that so much. If you don't tell them within a day or two, I'm going to tell them for you. How fast would slander and gossip stop in our church if we did that? Which leads to number seven, which is kind of the culmination of all of them. Number seven, troublemaking. This is heinous. And one who spreads strife among brothers. One of the things we learn when we read the New Testament is that God, listen, God cherishes, God treasures unity. And those who destroy unity are a specific target of his hatred, of his hatred. Proverbs 6, 14, who with perversity in his heart continually devises evil, who spreads strife, Proverbs 16, 18, a perverse man spreads strife, a slanderer separates intimate friends. Sometimes it's out of pure jealousy. You're friends with so-and-so, I wish I was as friendly with you or the other as they were. In order to get in that club, I'm going to try to separate you by saying something bad about one or the other. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. And then Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the sons of God. Being a troublemaker. Planting a seed in someone's mind to cause suspicion. Spreading strife among brothers. Trying to divide and trying to conquer by by disunifying, Paul said in Philippians 4, I urge Yodia and Syntyche to get along. Can you imagine? Well, someday we'll likely meet Yodia and Syntyche in heaven. And they will be two ladies who say, can you believe? I mean, they'll be sanctified, so will we. Can you believe we were forever canonized in the eternal word of God as not getting along? And I'm sure they'll say, I'm glad we could provide an example for you to avoid. We should avoid that example. God cherishes unity. He cherishes unity so much. You remember Philippians chapter 2, the great kenosis passage where, where it describes God in flesh suffering as a criminal on a cross, humbling himself. All of that is an illustration for how we're supposed to relate to each other so that we have unity. It's incredible. Don't be a troublemaker. Hey, students, don't be a troublemaker. Don't be a troublemaker. If you're a troublemaker now, you won't grow out of it. You'll grow into it. You'll perfect it. Let me say it again. God cherishes 
unity. These are things that God hates. Oh, he hates them out in the world. He hates them out in culture. He hates them out in society. But he hates them most in the heart of his blood-bought saints. And isn't it fair to say every one of these sins we can find in some acorn form in our heart and sometimes a sapling and sometimes a tree and sometimes a full-blown acorn-reproducing oak. May God prevent us from those trees growing. All of these elements resided in Rehoboam's heart. Solomon says, God hates these things. God hates these things. Do you hate what God hates? We want to love what God loves, but do you equally hate what God hates? Very briefly, what would that look like if we hated them? It means we would be serious about addressing these in our lives. It means we would be serious about identifying and shepherding them out of the lives of our beloved brothers and sisters in the body. We would be a stopgap. We would make sure that they were dealt with with each other. What would this look like in your family? Are any of these elements operative in your home? What's the very first one? Pride. If these are operative in your marriage, if these are operative in your parenting, if these are operative in how you respond to your folks, respond to your siblings, if those are operative there, the very first domino is to deal with your pride because it's your pride that will... It will cause you to avoid actually dealing with these things because you won't want to humble yourself to be the opposite of these other six. It really does start. The genius of God is amazing to start with. The first thing that God hates is pride. Look, I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love being your pastor. But I got to tell you, you are a wicked, prideful wretch just like me. And that first, that first domino of removing pride so that we can deal with these things in our heart. That's why we come to church to be edified by each other. To correct each other. To be sanctified and certainly to repent. Repent. 